G'day, Jared McKenna here. Decolonizing Sunday School is in full effect and so is Subversive Seminary and it's wonderful uh, joining many of you week in, week out in those spaces. But Drew, talk to us a little about what's happening on the podcast this next little while. Yeah, these next few episodes, we're going to do something just a little bit different instead of... Uh... Uh, bringing out some fresh content, um, which it will be coming soon. We've got some favorites in terms of what uh, me and Jared have found really helpful out of the podcast, but we're also going to include some of the most listened to episodes from the podcast as well. And so I think you all are going to appreciate these next few episodes. So we'd love to hear from you uh, what your favorites have been. And in the meantime, join us uh, live each week for our interviews as they happen and uh, more to come. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Jared. It's a dangerous book to put this ammunition in the hands of people who are still seeking power because spiritual power is the most dangerous of all. So why do the 12 steps make the first step powerlessness? I would say the same thing. Once you meet the absolute and you can accept your own powerlessness in relationship to this absolute, then I can entrust the Bible to you. Well, that's Richard Raw, and I'm David Andrew, and this is The Inverse Podcast, where we explore the good book, looking at ways in which it can turn our worlds upside down and lead us to love, but also contemplate its complexity and its paradox. Along the way, we chat with some leading scholars of the book, some atheists, mystics, doubters, comedians, politicians, and people from all walks of life. With myself, a creative and armchair theologian, who thinks that the Bible isn't a bunch of questions to be answered, but a historical document that leads us further and further into mystery that will help us live our life in new and surprising ways. And Jared McKenna, a former artist turned Peace Award winning social change educator, a pastor, a contemplative activist whose love for the one whom the good book points has led him to live a countercultural love with the hurting, the homeless, the addicted, and those simply needing safety for over 16 years. Sometimes this has led him to handcuffs and needing bail, and other times it's led him to be on stage with Bono. Together we ask, How can the best-selling book in history sometimes lead people to hate, but also with the same passages lead people to live lives of love that can turn this world upside down? Welcome to The Inverse Podcast. Maybe I could start with the first one. Um, Do you have a clear sense of when you first remember encountering Scripture? You know, I'm a typical Catholic. Now, I'm almost 75 now, Uh, so I was born before that pivotal event that we call the Second Vatican Council Mm. that reformed the Catholic Church from the bottom up. Now, that doesn't mean everybody accepted it or (laughs) surrendered to it, but it's in in our writings. And I remember the document on divine revelation, Mm. which I studied in 1966. I began my theological studies the year after. The council ended in 65. So I just give you that bit of history because... As you probably know, Catholics were not known. It's almost unbelievable to a a Protestant. (laughs) But we weren't known for studying Scripture. Now, there's an understandable reason for that, that the first 1,500 years of Christianity, most people were not literate. Very few people could read. A Bible took a whole year to copy. So it's not as if we were always intentionally anti-Scripture. It's just it wasn't available to most people. And if you look what some of us have done once we've been uh, yes, handed well, it. Well, I've said that. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> God, when we saw what people did with the scriptures, we were glad we didn't use them. But, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I was lucky to begin right my uh, the year after where uh, the, the Vatican II document on divine revelation taught us a very, very balanced and intelligent And the beginnings of liberationists, I'm not going to say it was fully there, but it opened the door entirely to it, which is why in a short time it emerged in Latin American Catholicism, liberation theology. But um, I just, I started falling in love with scripture. Now then I had four years of studying it with a very good professor, uh, uh, almost as exciting uh, study of the Hebrew scriptures, and even a several courses on what we call the intertestamental period, mm-hmm. which most people don't study. But, but that gave me a whole sense of a trajectory and, and uh, connecting the dots and seeing the development of a concept, mm-hmm. the development of a doctrine, 
Whereas most people were just given, if you were Catholics, you were given the dogma or the doctrine in its final shape, not realizing how it got there and all the vagaries of history it went through. Right, um, so without having to do any of the work yourself. Yeah, yeah, here's, yeah. Here's the end of the process. Here's so. the end of the, uh, yeah. And <laughs> you good Protestants did the same thing with just you had a, a bare Bible code, not without any <laughs> historical critical analysis yeah. of what context was that written in. The biggest single blindness being that it was all in a Jewish context. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't love and have studied Judaism, you really can't get the subversive nature of most of what Jesus does. Yes. Like that gospel we just read this right, morning sorry. on yeah. picking the grain on the Sabbath. Um, so, back to uh, try to answer your question. Uh, <laughs> I, I just loved Scripture. Uh, and I think it was because I was able to read it in a spiritual and symbolic way which to me has 10 more levels of, yeah. of transformative power the, for, than a literal historical way. Now, yeah. now, we studied, you know, the, the history and the text and the original Greek and all that, but it didn't transform you, you know. <laughs> it didn't do anything except make you critical. Mm. Um, so... Uh, it's, like, it's fascinating that you know, think taking scripture literally is taking it seriously. It's so amazing. There, yeah. you may used good words there. Uh, you know, the the first thousand years would have never thought that. Mm. You know, the, already Augustine in the fourth century has a minimum of four levels of interpretation. The Jewish approach to their own scriptures, as you know, called midrash, yeah. where you'd sit around and I think it says this, I think it says this. And that was rediscovered again by the base communities yes. in Latin America, yeah. you know, where why does there have to be only one? This, this, I, I know why Luther said it, and I respect and honor, thank God, he was trying to correct we Catholics, us Catholics, but um, sola scriptura mm. just set us down a road that was way too narrow yeah. and, and way too argumentative, yes. argumentative. It, it set up the basis for an argumentative Christianity. Yeah. When, when the only basis for truth is a line in Scripture, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> that is just, it was never intended to be the only basis yeah. for truth. And one of the things um, I find so fascinating about the base communities is location. And mm, James Cohen has been a big mm, influence on me and when he talks good. about... Um, the context from where we do theology determines that the yes. theology yes. we arrive with. Yes. What yes. it is to take a text and sit in a circle with peasants, with working people, with people whose hands have been in the soil yes. during the day, yes. who have worked under the sun, and then in the cool of the night mm. around trees. Mm. I mean, even just reading scripture outside, it opens you in such a way around a circle, listening to others. There are elements there which is very different from the European, Western, academic, yeah. in a study by himself. That's right, that's right. And apply that to any group, a circle of yeah. women, yes. a circle of gay people, yeah. a circle of people who live in the forests of Alaska. The reason I say that is I just was exposed to that yesterday, people who live in the wilderness. Beautiful. And, and who have faith, but it, it isn't our white American kind of faith. Yeah. It's much more rugged and, and honest in some ways. I had an incredible experience, Richard, where I was on Manus Island, and it, it's actually, mm. Australia is using it as a prison for oh, refugees, oh. but I was with local people, and um, we were being smuggled onto the island to be with the men in solidarity, and the New York Times went in the week before us. But one of the fascinating things for me was the, the local people with this incredibly devout faith and the Navy were looking for us, and uh, so they would turn the engine off, and we're sitting out there in the tropical ocean, and they said, we're going to pray now, and God will speak to us through the birds and through the sound of the monkeys and through the ocean. And wow. asked, so my friend Olivia, who, uh, you, you know, um, uh, the only time she uses the name Jesus is <laughs> when she's swearing. She's there. She's, a, um, a, you know, a journalist, and she sure. goes at the grave, yeah. and she was there to document it oh, with us. Oh, my goodness. Um, we were both so moved as and realizing just how secular my worldview is 
for being with these brothers who courageously were smuggling us into this place for these mainly Muslim refugees and their insistence that their quoting of the Psalms comes alive as you listen to creation. Mm. One of the things I've been so impacted mm. by your work is the integration of um, that our only scriptures aren't uh, the written word. And creation is the first Bible. Yeah, and incredible. I could defend that biblically. I mean, of but, course. <laughs> but most of us just were not. Uh, that came from my Franciscan training. Yeah, you know. But actually, then some of the early Eastern fathers were, were already talking that way. It's yeah. just we limited the incarnation to the body of Jesus. Hmm. Talk about narrowing down. The word became flesh. It doesn't say the word became Jesus. And the early Eastern fathers read it that way. This was a generic yes to materiality, yeah. physicality, yes. the universe, creation. Um, darn, no wonder we have such poor politics, such <laughs> poor caring for the earth. Because all of this was, I'm looking out at a tree out my window here, wasn't sacred. It yeah. wasn't It wasn't in even a... a a reflection of the incarnation. Yeah. So, so by over-limiting the incarnation of merely the body of Jesus, they were back to that sola only. We all we love to. It's a stingy mind actually mm. that loves to always limit it to this. Mm. The sacramental principle is that you come to the universal through the concrete, oh, but when you stay with the concrete, you end up with idolatrous religion. Mm. You, you never see the holes forest you just see the tree and you worship the tree <laughs> instead of recognize what's true of this tree is true of every tree yeah but um that's the lens that either we put on in the next century or i don't know what future christianity has and yeah i i really don't and it's, this is uh, the next book you're working on it's I'm, i was just writing on it all day yesterday mm. yeah to try to distinguish the Christ from Jesus. Now, mm. it took us 2,000 years to overcome the shock of the incarnation being true in one person, Jesus. Mm. But as you know from Colossians, Ephesians, the prologue to John's Gospel, the first paragraph of 1 John, the first paragraph of Hebrew, it's always the first, they all say very clearly the Christ existed, we would say, from the Big Bang, you yeah. know? <laughs> from the very beginning. Uh, but we conflated Jesus and Christ and lost the universal message. I don't think it was bad will. I simply think it took modern science to widen the lens and the Hubble telescope to widen the lens to make us respect the first Bible, the first creation. Mm. And, and if God wasn't speaking for 13.6 billion years, that's the approximate date yeah. we're giving you to it now. What was God doing? Did, did this mean nothing? <laughs> yeah. And God waited till 2,000 years ago to start, start talking yeah. to us? I mean, I love Jesus, but uh, you put together the concrete Jesus with the universal Christ. You've got a great religion. That's, really, that's yeah. Yeah. You've got the best of both. And I think it's only now we're ready to put Jesus and Christ together. Wow. Do you know in all of Paul's letters, forgive me. No, please. Jesus only, I mean, Paul only uses the separate word Jesus without Christ or Lord or five times. Mm. And two of those are in the hymn in Philippians, which is written by someone else, presumably. Yeah. So you could say he uses the word Jesus separate three times. Mm. And you know how many times he uses en Christo? 164 times. Incredible. Yeah, his whole, he never knew Jesus in the flesh, which mm. he says very clearly. Mm. He only knew the Christ. Yes. And in that, Paul was set up to be a perfect instructor oh. for the subsequent ages. Because that's all you and I know is the Christ. Yes. Through that, yes, we have the, Jesus. But most of us started with Jesus and ended with Jesus. And we overplayed the Jesus card. I hope that doesn't sound like a put down because you know, uh, my understanding of Jesus has only been deepened mm. and broadened uh, by uh, my understanding of Christ. But And I think um, years and years and years of listening to you and, and knowing uh, 
we were talking before we pressed record about the, the cassettes back when, and we thought cassettes were old at the time because we were <laughs> no, using CDs. But I, like, and, and for me, it was nearly a da daily practice listening. So I've listened to your teaching mm. for such a long time, but I'm sure if people are maybe listening to this for the first time, there's a number of alarm bells. Yeah, I can think of one crowd. Where is he taking yeah, me? Yeah, one crowd it was, it was like, uh, might be going in the direction of, well, isn't this what the um, liberal Germans in Nazi Germany did, separating the historical Jesus mm -hmm. from the Christ that led to an Aryan Christ separated from mm -hmm. all the where our conversation initially started with um, the Jesus of history in context, this um, uh, oppressed brown-skinned Middle Eastern Palestinian Jew li living under occupation. But that's not what you're no, saying. No, not even close. Yeah, would, yeah. would you unpack In fact, some of if, that? if the... If the Germans had understood the Christ as a universal concept, they could have never limited it to the Aryan race, you know. Mm. And, of course, they had to do their best, which is totally unworkable, to make Jesus un-Jewish. So they just transferred tribal thinking from one tribe to another. Mm. But, but they weren't universal thinkers at all mm. you know evangelicals will sometimes come up to me after a talk and they think they're they've got me trapped and they say are you a universalist like i'm supposed to uh, run away from that word i said i'm a catholic and that's what catholic <laughs> means <laughs> and that was taken by early christians as early as 108 that this message had a yeah. universal import of course and it wasn't a clannish religion. No. And in fact, mm. the, the reign of God in, in Christos, mm. which you're talking about, like, like you, you can't separate those two, the messianic age and the Messiah, to say one is to say a universal hope, to say a universal yes, 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 reality. Yes, yes. Very um, good. But uh, I also think of the womanist scholars who, and those early um, womanist books like uh, the white, woman's Christ and the black woman's Jesus mm. and their mm. insistence on um, uh, the Jesus of Nazareth and his Im importance and uh, that any talk of this universal mm. we see in the face of this this brown face living under occupation. Hey, David here. Look, I'm just going to name it. Let's call it what it is. Jared's clearly not on the same page as Richard Raw and consequently Matthew Fox when it comes to divorcing the cosmic Christ from the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Jared wants his cosmic Christ and to eat of Jesus too. Yep, that's a communion joke. So I'm fairly new to being able to communicate with any clarity about the cosmic Christ and my entryway to that discussion kind of came through Richard Raw's teaching. So it's still fairly new territory for me and something that I'm keen to tease out as I study a bit further. So with this, I'm pretty sure that Jared thinks the same practical conclusions can be reached, but with a more delicate touch that affirms the patristics on the subject. In the show notes is the link to our Patreon community, where you can access a number of extras, including our discussions with theologians who share with Richard and Jared a passion for contemplative spirituality, climate justice, and science, yet want to radically affirm that in Jesus, God's fullness was pleased to dwell, not at the exclusion of incarnation principle throughout the Bible and history, but as its summation and clearest revelation. So click on the link in the show notes for those extras, and I'll jump in with some more resources a bit later. Let's get back into the conversation. That, uh, well, if I understand you, you're going in exactly the right direction. Let me repeat the sacramental principle. You must come to the universal through the concrete, through the specific, through the, the individual. Uh, that's Jesus. He, he grounds the whole thing. It, you can't believe in an energy, a force. <laughs> you don't fall in love with it, maybe put it that way. Right, you yeah, can't yeah. fall in love with it. You know? uh, when you come face to face... Are you familiar with the work of Emmanuel Levinas? Sure. Where he says the ultimate moral imperative is the face of the other. Mm. That's the way Jesus functions. He gives a concrete face that you can fall in love with, like yes. 1 John says, with a universal message. Yeah. It takes you a while to reposition your mind to let the personal and the universal work together. Mm. But if you are willing to allow that, you've got a really 
good religion, if yeah. I can say that. The best <laughs> of both worlds, you know. Now, most liberal thinkers, overly academic, uh, secular thinkers, they throw out the specific. They don't want to be limited by anything too specific, you know. Um, uh, and they fly around in, in uh, uh, generalities. Yeah, generalities. Yeah. So they don't ever have to place their bet, you know. Mm. So here's where, I mean, I've met over the years, for example, I just met one yesterday, Southern Baptists, who I, you know, as a Catholic, I know Southern Baptist theology, and it feels so forgive me, limited. So, and well, even I'm just, not a Southern Baptist, so I don't need to forgive. So. <laughs> even justified slavery, you know, yeah. divided over that issue. Yeah. Oh, my God. And yet, uh, thank you for allowing me to say that, some of the most fervent, broad-minded social activists have been starting as Southern Baptists. Right. Well, yeah. So they got the concrete very well. They went huh. deep in one place, and it led them to the universal. Wow. Whereas I'll say the rate for people who begin with the universal, the sort of postmodern denying, you know, uh, anything except generalities, and then even denying any meta-narratives, mm. They, they're so afraid of the concrete mm. because it demands commitment, it demands surrender, it demands encounter, face-to-face. Yeah. -face. Yes. And they, there's a resistance to that kind of divine intimacy. Yeah. So we've all got our blind spots is what I'm saying. But yeah. I think the, the easiest, most trustworthy path is to begin with the specific, then see its limitations. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with this paradigm that I use in our living school. It almost sounds childish, but I say picture three boxes. Have you heard me tell you one? Mm. Uh, order, disorder, reorder. Mm. Uh, that's the easiest path, to start with order. Then as you grow up, you see, oh, the order, the salvation project, as I've described, it really doesn't work. <laughs> You have to, that's a necessary disillusion. Yeah. That's prophetic criticism. Yes. Now, now your bona fide, true believer, conservative, will not allow any disorder, mm. will not allow any fly in the ointment of their perfect explanation, you wow. see. So they tend to stay trapped in the first box, mm. justifying their explanation of order, all evidence to the contrary. Now, if you think I'm criticizing them too much, people born like you obviously were after 1968, mm -hmm. or were you? Yes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> you tended to be born into the box of disorder, what yeah. we call postmodernism, yes. where it's all not really believing in anything, dismissal as a way of life, mm -hmm. cynicism as a way of life, denial as a way of life. It's not a very happy world. Mm. Well, it's, it really is. It doesn't create happy people. But it does create critical consciousness. So mm. that's the second box of disorder. Mm. Now here's what I tell the students. There's no nonstop flight from the first box <laughs> to the third box. <laughs> a lot of people think they're in reorder. Huh. And they're just in order. You know, they call themselves saved or enlightened or transformed. But it's just maintaining their cultural explanation yeah. of reality. You've got to go through critical consciousness. And where do we learn that? From the prophets. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you're going to interview Walter Brueggemann. Yeah. Because Brueggemann and Abraham Heschel, yes. these two people, for the first time in, human, in Christian history, made the prophets come alive. Wow. See, what well, we use the prophets, and I mean use, yeah. simply... To foretell Jesus. <laughs> Proof text, yeah. <laughs> That's about one half of one percent of the message of the prophet, to directly foretell Jesus. Yeah. They, they knew nothing about Jesus. Now, now, did he stand on their heritage? Yes. Of course, yeah. And in that sense, they foretold, they foreshadowed, would be mm. a better word, mm. foreshadowed Jesus. So, um, what we the ego doesn't want to go through the second box of yeah of facing its own idolatries, its own cultural biases, its own illusions. That's necessary disorder. Yeah. Right? If you can hold on to what was good about order, 
the best of the traditional, good Southern Baptist. I hope I'm a good Catholic, right? <laughs> I go through seeing, well, here's what's bad about Catholic. Here's what's limited about Catholic. Here's where we Catholics completely miss the point. Mm -hmm. That's the beginnings. That's where you learn, frankly, what I call non-dual thinking. Yeah. You have to be non-dual. You have yeah. to be a contemplative yeah. to hold on to both. Most people in the second box think as soon as they've, well, what about the Inquisition? What about the Crusades? Yeah, yeah I know all that. <laughs> Big deal. I probably know it was worse than you do. You know? <laughs> they think as soon as they found, you know, 82% of evangelicals, white evangelicals, voted for Trump. This yeah. disproves evangelicalism forever. Now, right. people are saying that in America, sure. you know, yeah, and yeah. I can see why. And in Australia, like, mm. people don't want to use the term. Like, oh. So I'm from Charismatic, I'm a pastor in a Pentecostal church oh, now, oh, but um, the term evangelical has... Oh, overnight. Been, it, it means white, it means blind, it means arrogant, it means yeah. um, the hegemonic reality of American empire and the chaplain to it is this certain that's yeah. what it conjures up in people's yes, minds yes. well it does over here now too more and more young people do not want to half of our staff were evangelicals and they mm. don't even like the word anymore yeah. isn't that a shame well I mean even people <laughs> like um, our friend Tony Campolo oh, um, yeah. I, he was just using, here with me yeah, last month Yeah, it, it's not using the term anymore but I guess what I hear you saying Richard is that the non-dual thinking means that you do have to integrate the shadow. You, you can't. That's and us Protestants, our, our work of, you know, finally starting a new church of this time we've got it right, that that endless... <laughs> You're setting yourself up for... But you still got to try it. Yeah. It's okay. Right. But just be prepared to be disappointed. Okay. <laughs> that will keep you from idolatry. That's all. Right. You know, that's all. And I guess it doesn't mean you have to throw it out. Yeah. The... The work you're doing around the cosmic Christ as well, and maybe that's your ultimate comeback to those who say you're separating Jesus and the cosmic Christ. It's yeah. like, well, I'm a non-dualist, so yeah, well, it is <laughs> holding it together. Yeah, yeah. Hi, David here. In future episodes of the Inverse Podcast, we're going to sit down with respected Eastern Orthodox theologians Brad Josak and Andrew Klager, and they're going to talk about what they deeply respect about Raw's work, but where they think that he misses the beauty of orthodoxy and how he's putting some things together. Also, in a future episode with Drew Hart, we're going to look at the importance of the prophetic black church, the Anabaptist, the liberation theology, and the womanist perspectives on being Jesus-centered and what that means and how we can never separate Jesus from any discussion of the cosmic Christ. Let's drop into a sneak peek of that conversation now. It's a phrase that comes up both in from some Anabaptists and black theologians, which is, take Jesus seriously, Yeah. right? And I think that's a really helpful way to engage scripture is to take Jesus seriously. Mm. And so, you know, it's not by accident that we have four gospel narratives, mm -hmm. right? Um, they thought it was so important that they, four different angles and depictions and portrayals of Jesus' life and different emphases um, ought to be um, engaged with uh for Christians who are seeking to, you know, reside in God. And so I, I think that um, figuring out a way how the birth, life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus can reshape how we read Scripture. Mm. Um, and hopefully it can... Um, cut off some bad interpretations, yeah. right? Because I think that in some ways Jesus takes sides in some of the um, tensions and debates within the pages of Scripture. Let's jump back into the conversation. People have had no contemplative mind training mm. who don't know how to think non-dually, which is to have a tolerance for ambiguity, to be able to live with paradox, to integrate contradictions without dividing and forming a new church mm. because you found a contradiction. That's a different mind. So yeah. that's why I think our contemplative teaching is is the pearl of great price. Yes. You just can't deal with any of the great doctrines, dogmas, church history itself without a contemplative mind. You will always splinter, divide, and become arrogant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and think that your new group is without shadow. Without <laughs> you know, the only reason I can say it so glibly is because I've done it. I, sure. I did it in Cincinnati with the New Jerusalem. Yeah. And I've done it here, uh, where I, I supposedly started things. But, you know, now here we're 30 years old. Yeah. 
And right now we're probably stronger than ever, but boy, did we have to do a lot of shadow work over 30 years and continue to have to do it. Fortunately, we have a staff who now know how to do that. Yes. Without all this overreacting, this overzealousness of people who have discovered a new idea Mm. and think it's the whole explanation. (laughs) It can't be. It never will be, and it doesn't need to be. But that's a different line that can balance, you probably heard me say it, balance knowing with unknowing. Mm. And that, for me, is the genius of the biblical notion of faith. Mm. And when we turn the biblical notion of faith around from balancing knowing with unknowing into just knowing, (laughs) we create an, an idolatrous and inherently unhappy Christianity. Which, I mean, the irony, given that the biggest threat to the early church was Gnosticism. The, yes, that yes, there is this yes. secret knowledge that gives yeah. you power um, over, over others. And, and then we is, didn't realize and, we had it. And then, we, yeah, that, our, um, that technically Christianity is an agnostic faith because it requires faith. Like, otherwise, <laughs> all you left with Very is, good way to say it. I've never said it that way. Isn't it ironic? The best way to, to uh, be a heretic is to condemn it. So we <laughs> we condemned Gnosticism under a different name every single century of the church. Mm. Not realize that much of mainland Christianity was a head trip. Yes, yeah, it was highly it, Gnostic. Our, our own shadow work, what yeah, we were trying there to persecute out there. Was, yeah. And you know, now to tie that up with America today, mm. and I suspect you know what I'm going to say. When we elected Donald Trump, we elected our own shadow for the whole world to know. Wow. He is... He is our materialism, our arrogance, our anti-intellectualism, our deceitfulness, all summarized in one person. Wow. You know? And the rest of the world can see that better than 30% of Americans or 35% wow. who really can't see that. Why? Because they're on bended knee before it. Yeah. You, know, you can't see your own shadow. Which, which brings Ooh. us back to... Yeah. Um, Biographically, in your your first encounter uh, with scripture, uh, as a, we've gone a long way from no, that no, first question. Fine, but, so, go ahead, Richard. I, I can and have listened to you for years and years on end. So <laughs> you know what I'm I don't mind say next. W- w- whatsoever. Um, those early experiences, what was scripture something that was liberating or oppressive? Because I'm very aware in this context. It, it is something that is wielded, um, that yeah. something on this land, like my own, has been used to justify genocide of First Peoples, um, uh, that is used to um, uh, suppress uh, women and sexual minorities. And I mean, you name yeah, it. You right? name it. But your own personal experience, was it something on the spectrum of liberating and oppressive? Where, where would you situate yourself? You know, the reason I... I think I paid attention to the right text, if I can grant myself that. Hmm. I mean, I can remember being, I mean, just enraptured for days with Second Samuel 7, uh, where Yahweh says to David, you want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. I think what liberated me was that I'd had early God experience, starting hmm. as a little boy. And once you've had personal inner in-depth God experience, you know what texts are progressive moving forward, I mean, Mm. and what texts are regressive. So I read, you know, Yahweh's words to David, and I knew he was speaking that to me. He had built me a house, you know, understand? Here I thought I was going to be a heroic priest and save the world, and and then it just, just named my inner experience. No, it's all you. You're doing it to me. I'm just, I just got to stay out of the way. I still, again this week, I opened up Second Samuel 7, which is probably why it was on my mind. Mm. Uh, so I was attracted inherently to the text that spoke of inclusivity, grace, uh, nonviolence. I didn't even use that word in the '60s. Sure. It was just coming to be, uh, because those passages, which weren't all passages, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
those made sense to my inner experience. Whereas the passages that were penal, punitive, imperial, exclusionary, mm. I knew they were true. Mm. I, <laughs> I knew that wasn't the way God talked. Mm. You know? Now, how did I know that? Because I had an inner template already, a grid by which to, to let in the passages that were where the, where the trajectory was going, yeah. where the text was leading. If you don't have that, it's just, it's frankly, it's dangerous to put the Bible in the hands of people, it's going to sound so presumptuous, but who, who don't know God. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't already... Or, or don't know that they don't know yeah, and yeah. are seeking to know because of that. Like, yeah. I, like you're, I, I mean, I think so many people out of the charismatic and like your experience like that, that that warm, tender experience yeah. of the spirit that yeah. um, relativizes everything in your life everything. because of that love. Yes. And um, I get it. Like a, mm. it's it's a it's a testimony that I think um, many. But yeah, if if it doesn't change your reading of scripture, scripture becomes a a weapon. A in, weapon, just. I mean, it's done as much harm in history as good, or more perhaps. <laughs> it's a dangerous book. To put it in the to put this ammunition mm. in the hands of people who are still seeking power. Yes, because <laughs> spiritual power is the most dangerous of all. So, why do the twelve steps make the first step powerlessness? I would say the same thing. Once you meet the absolute, and you can accept your own powerlessness in relationship to this absolute, then I can entrust the Bible to you. Mm. But a young man who still wants to use ministry as a career or use God as as ammunition so he can be right and they can be wrong mm. we just can't continue to do that yeah. although we will <laughs> we will continue to do that but it, it's of no use yeah. it's, it's, it's actually much of the problem hey everybody David here again we hope that you're enjoying the conversation so far and all the color and complexity that it's bringing We've set up a Patreon page, and it's a place that you can interact with us. It's a place that you can help shape the content and the future where the podcast is going, and also build community around the curiosity that we have for the Bible. And on that platform, we're going to be offering heaps of extra content, including an extra episode of Nerdy Theology, where Jared, Ben Myers, and Byron Smith get together and discuss the implications of Richard Raw's theology here in this episode. And another episode essentially from the Peanut Gallery, which is myself and Hoover Koshner, a good friend of ours, as we discuss much the same things with more fun poking and less nerdiness. If you think that that's something that you want to be a part of, why don't you head to patreon.com slash inverse, and we look forward to joining in the conversation there. All right, let's jump back in. Richard, I'm aware that many of the people who listen to this are um, average Aussies who aren't people of faith. And they're, they're uh, interested in social change. They're interested in spirituality. And they have mev- never encountered scripture. Yeah. Um, and it sounds terrifying because of the, the historical reality of how scripture has been used. One of the things that I'm keen to do with um, the short amount of time that we have left, if you're willing, is for you to, to choose a passage and to speak mm. to its liberating potential. Oh, yeah. Would you be willing to well you know the one that just jumped to my head and that's all I can do is trust is, mm. is Luke 4 where he opens the scriptures in the synagogue and why did he choose that passage it's totally liberationist mm. and, and, and he chooses that to read before the assembly plus he skips the final line which is punitive yeah. and vengeful so if Christians want to think that he was a cafeteria Christian, as they call it, that he picked and chose. He clearly did. Right. He does the same with the book of Leviticus, as you know. Sure. He, uh, 26 negative lines. He doesn't <laughs> quote one of them. He quotes he the one positive it. line, yeah. you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. Jesus was very selective. So, I don't know, you may be wanting me to go more in depth, but uh, let me go back to place, yeah. Luke 4. <laughs> I mean, wow, this is very subversive. <laughs> Jesus has some biases. Jesus has some... <laughs> uh, 
He's got an agenda. I don't know that we'd trust him even, you know? Or want much to do with his agenda. Yeah, or much, much well, yeah. So, and even then he says he shut the book afterwards. It's just amazing for me. Oh, that's three, sorry. I'm glad you can edit it. He came to his hometown where he had been brought up. So this is business as usual, domestic religion. Went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as he usually did. So it shows him being a law-abiding Jew, still respecting the first box, order. He stood up to read, and they handed him the scroll. And he found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He describes his Messiahship. He has anointed me, which means Messiah. And what is it? To bring good news to the poor or the afflicted. It's translated differently. To proclaim liberty to captives. Is this reform of the penal system? Mm. I mean, I don't know how else you can hear it. Uh, I was jail chaplain here for 14 years. Incredible. I mean, the penal system. I'm not saying everybody who works in the jail is bad, but this whole system is bad. Yeah, the, the privatization oh. of incarceration. In fact, I'd in say it's America demonic. Is the just, system is demonic. Yeah. 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 It, it is easier for mm. a young black man to go to jail in this nation than university. Like, wow. What, what does that Never say? Never heard it put that way. Yeah. About, yeah. So, what's this man proclaiming liberty to these? If they're in prison, they're wrong. He apparently has a different bias mm. or a different assumption. Sight to the blind to let the oppressed grow, go free. So he's on the side of the oppressed mm. to proclaim a year of favor from the Lord. And you know the next line that he skips, and a day of vengeance from our God. Yeah. He won't quote it. Mm. Very selective reading, Jesus. <laughs> I don't think we trust you. <laughs> He then rolled up the scroll, even mentioning of that. I'm stopping right here. Rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the assistant, and sat down. Mm. The eyes and all in the synagogue were fixed on him, undoubtedly because he said it with such authority. Um, how come we didn't hear his job description, <laughs> which yeah. he made very clearly right at the beginning in Luke's interpretation? So it's once you see it, you can't not see it. The, yeah. the whole Bible is where, where the trajectory led. Yeah. So I call that my Jesus hermeneutic. I don't yeah. know if you heard me talk about that. Um, and it's so it's so simple that it sounds naive or even childlike. Let's interpret the Bible the way Jesus did. Amen. That's the Jesus hermeneutic. And in fact, a lot of our churches said that historically, but mm. th they didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> we can be really good at saying things. Yeah. <laughs> saying things and not doing it. And, um, so how did he interpret it? He was very selective. He ignored large parts of it. To my knowledge, for example, he never quotes Joshua and Judges. Yeah. <laughs> Which is remarkable. He, he's, he yeah. literally shares the same name as Joshua. Even the name. And that is so alive in the imagination of an oppressed people that go, going yeah. in to take. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a story written by the oppressed, um, expressing that taking land, taking... And Jesus Jesus never directly... It's, it's phenomenal, isn't it? Like phenomenal, it's, yeah. yeah. And yet, you know, when we'd analyze... In terms of levels of consciousness, it's early stage primitive mm. religious consciousness. That doesn't make it wrong. But what I'm leading up to is I believe when Rene Girard said the Bible is a text in travail, yes. that the problem is included in the text. Yes. <laughs> the regressive passages are in the Bible too. Mm. Just understanding that, that it's edging forward, three steps forward, two steps back, mm. three, and sometimes in the same paragraph, it'll make a marvelous statement about God's gratuitous mercy and love, mm. and then the very next paragraph regresses to, unless you obey all the commandments, you know, Yahweh mm. will, will show his wrath to you. It, it's, I always use it as an example of the first time you say I love you to your girlfriend, and then... You say, oh my God, what did I just say? And you pull back from it. <laughs> Where is this going to lead me? Too, too much vulnerability. Too much. Yes. Yeah. I just expressed vulnerability, and you'll see them pull back yeah. into the law. Yeah. It's, 
it, it can be illustrated all through the scriptures, yeah. even in the New Testament. Mm. Huh? Because there are regressive passages in the New Testament mm. or where we appear to be too eager to make the Jews the, mm. the villains in John's gospel. Mm-hmm. But, of course, they were Jews, so they didn't see that as yeah. <laughs> the way we now can read it with, my gosh, is this an anti-Semitic text? Mm. No, but it can be used that way yes. by immature people. Yes. And it has been. Yeah. So, Richard, you're talking about a non-dual reading of scripture yeah that's it that it's we, always the key so instead of the marcy night let's edit out all the all the protestant yeah, that's right. um finally uh, yeah. the bible of this time we got it right that's right that uh, i mean because in doing formation with new christians in australia who previously don't have any biblical literacy yeah. whatsoever one of the ways that um I, I put it in our introductory course that um if, if you want a sign of inspiration of scripture, it's that all the shadow stuff hasn't been edited out. Very I mean, good. It, it, Very it's good. incredible what's That's left what in saying. there. Like the yeah. horror of Tamar, like the, the mm. Hagar's cry, mm. like the, um, the things that you would clearly, if, if you were doing a hagiography of your family history, things you'd leave out. You'd never. And mm. the Jewish imagination and its brilliance left it all That's in. Right. Like it's not propaganda, it's it's confession. <laughs> like it's excellent, excellent. I totally agree with you. So the how... problem is inserted in the text. You know, yeah. it's just like, you know, when when Paul says is in Romans that we're all, we all have sinned. I think sin is part of the deal in mm. in the human journey. Mm. That it's when I regress that I learn what progress is, what what it means to move forward. You you have to make the mistake in my reading of the gospel. Mm. You have to fail, mm. and it's the struggle with your failure that makes you appreciate grace and growth and freedom and love and all the things that matter. You can't eliminate the problem from the solution. Yes, you have to include the problem in the solution. Yeah, and you're so right. The Bible does that, but once we made it into this magical text that fell from heaven. A little answer book, which had nothing but inspired sentences one after the other, mm. we were set up for failure, <laughs> real problems, and and denying. Yeah. Like if we treat scripture like that and don't deal with mm-hmm. that which is unredeemed, we'll do an edit out of our own souls. Those yeah. parts, which yes. yeah, there you go. The parallel between the soul and between the historic text mm. and the historic journey. You, I, I, in my book on Franciscanism, mm. I say that the genius of St. Francis was that he integrated the negative, you know, yeah. integrated the negative. He didn't eliminate it. But you and I were trained to eliminate the negative, get rid yeah. of it. Huh? Yeah. No, you learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. It ends up being your greatest teacher. It's, That's it's our selfie self. It's the, yeah, the yeah, photo. Right. Not, you understand it all. I don't have anything to teach you. Oh, You're there already. I, I am, but I'm, very few people are. I steal all my best stuff from Jesus, and the rest is probably yours, Richard. Like, it's, it's years and years. Oh, nice of, way to um, say it. Uh, you know, to move forward with your question, though, uh, what then gave me the real verification of this was, first of all, as you know, the community I first started was mm, charismatic. Yeah. And so I lived in the whole charismatic world of trusting the inspiration of God through just throwing the Bible open, so I felt, <laughs> which I know is so dangerous, but it gave you a romantic, trustful relationship to mm. the text. And then almost uh, right after that, by the late 70s, the whole emergence of liberation theology yes where I was then given the intellectual heft Mm. to say, oh my gosh, this liberationist approach is valid, it's Mm. legitimate. So I had the charismatic and the liberationist, again, the personal and the universal, Mm. to get back to that. And when you get both of those, and you keep them in balance, you have people who are baptized in the spirit, if I can even use that phrase, who have this personal love affair with God. Mm. So their, their, their egocentricity has been minimized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Then you give them the liberationist 
approach, you've got the best of both worlds, yes. in my opinion. Yes. And that's much of what we're trying to raise up here. Yeah. Now, uh, the center wouldn't consider itself charismatic, but it it benefits from a lot of charismatic uh, teaching yeah. without knowing it. And, and my personal experience is that it was uh, it, it, charismatic spiritual experiences that led me into the contemplative. That. Very common, very common. Yes, very good, yeah. In fact, I'd say that's probably uh, the intended course. I, right. I think I think what, what is called the baptism in the spirit is, is many mysticism. Mm. It just opens the door. The very thing of speaking in tongues is the beginnings of not knowing and yeah. not needing to know. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that people who've had charismatic experience in speaking in tongues go back to an idolatry of words yes. is makes no sense. They were taught a non-idolatry of words yeah. in the tongues phenomenon. And yet there's, mm -hmm. a, there's an addiction to spiritual one-night stands where yes, instead yes, of a, a love yes. affair, we, yes. we, we, we want we want that thing that mm. once was that. Mm. That's um, right. To keep going back and be saved again. That. And, and we have whole um, religious systems oh, set yeah. up and conferences where people mm. travel over to again experience what that opened first the door wonderful night. that yeah. should bring them on. That mm. should like mm. even the beautiful text that you chosen that we have our Lord saying, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me." It starts with this deeply, like here is the particular the Messiah who brings a messianic age, the universal. Yeah. And our Lord is modeling there that like mm. the spirit is upon me because he has anointed me. And then the vision is so universal. But so, the pattern mm. that you so brilliantly describe in your teaching, it's, it's so there. It's so, and I think that's been one of the greatest gifts of um, your teaching for me is your ability to uh, distill and uh, eloquently, but also elegantly sketch the. Here's where you're going. Here's. here's God, the... I wish I, I could see myself that way, but <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm grabbing clumsily for words. But if people like you hear it, that makes me very happy. Thank you. Yeah. Richard, um, what what gift would you leave people with in terms of your your own experience in in, in prayer? Um, when we come to Scripture, that you'd want to to leave with us as we open up Scripture, mm -hmm. what what particular thing do you think might help us most? As um, uh, I know, daily praying the Scriptures is a practice of you, sure, and it was beautiful sure. doing that um, this morning. Uh, what particular thing do you think will help people mm -hmm. stay on that trajectory? <laughs> yeah, continue to on the trajectory. to follow Jesus, seeking the the same spirit that was poured out on him that it's poured out on us. How do we keep going from that personal love affair into the universal mm -hmm. love affair? Well, what's coming to mind right now is just if you can allow the text to intrigue both your head and your heart, and the more those two learn to operate together as friends, mm. and I, by head, of course, I mean a bit of critical thinking, yeah, yeah. a bit of honest analysis about uh, what this might be saying and what this might be critiquing. Yes. Together with keep it heart-centered, that, it, that it's a compassionate interpretation. It's mm. an inclusive interpretation. It's, uh, it takes much of your life to learn how to let head and heart operate as one. Mm. And you have to almost, not almost, but I think you have to make the mistake many times of too much head, too much heart, too much head, too much heart. <laughs> to little by little, the, the divine two-step, uh, I, I think, e emerges where you can let heart inform head mm. and head inform heart. I wonder if that isn't really embodiment. If Yes. That that's full cellular knowing. I've even been using the term carnal knowledge so much <laughs> riskily lately. <laughs> it's carnal knowledge, body not Your body is resonant yes. with when head and heart work together. Yeah. There is some deeper intuitive, yes, yeah. this is true. Even though there's some vulnerability to it because you can't prove 
carnal knowledge yes. to other people. Yeah. And I, I think that's why we wanted to be fundamentalist or rational, because we wanted to be able to prove it. Mm. And if you can't sit with vulnerability and humility, I can't prove this. And, I, and even further, I don't need to. I can just be it mm. and let the fruit flow, mm. you know. So um, I think that's that's the way to to hear the word of God. Yeah, yeah. Which comes down to humility. Uh, yeah. It's humility that can limit the head and limit the over emotionalism of the heart too. Because mm. I think the heart has. I mean, that's what kept a lot of the charismatic movement in this country from ever moving towards social justice. It just really. It just wanted heart every Friday night, more <laughs> more emotion, more heart, more love of Jesus, yeah. and no implications toward the homeless or toward American imperialism or, mm. or warlikeness. Uh, so many of us did move from the charismatic to the contemplative. Yeah. yeah. I, a number of friends, because I'm so deeply disturbed by what's happening here, and it's ramifications it for everywhere. And, it should be. Um, it's... Uh, a mate of ours in common, Shane Claiborne. Mm. Um, he was uh, just he, here last month. Too. He was saying, yeah, 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 yeah. He said to say good day. Oh, oh um, thank as you. did Neville Watson. And, Neville, um, tell Neville I remember him so well. He's he he so generous. What a ge gentleman. I'm really yeah. looking forward to interviewing him. Oh, he's, oh, okay. Um, he, he's still in the pulpit once a month. No. Yeah, yeah. He's God he's such a legend. He's God an incredible yes. legend. Um, uh, Shane and I have been talking about the need for revival in yes, this nation, yes. and not in um, the the limited sense, but in the the true sense of everything you've been describing. Like to connect mm. the deeply personal, uh, this overpowering experience of of tenderness mm. to a social tenderness, mm. like to Ooh, a social nice. I like that. empathy, yeah. where. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, all my biggest heroes nearly come from this this nation. Um, uh, whether we're talking Martin Luther King, or yeah, uh, yeah. Ella Baker, mm. or Thomas Merton, yes. or Philip yeah. and Daniel Berrigan, yeah. or Dottie Day, yeah, I know. or America's like, the best and it's the worst. But it's incredible. <laughs> it, it's and there yeah. are such phenomenal resources yeah. in this nation. Yeah. What what do you think any talk of revival um, of um, people wanting to turn, what must we avoid? And, and what do you think we, we need to embrace? Do, I mean, do you have any like cautions for <laughs> those of us who are talking this way? Let me start by uh, saying that if it's going to be a revival, what we have to communicate is a collective notion of evil. And we've got to stop individualizing the gospel. It's just a matter of, in our revival, converting this person mm -hmm. or this person. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in Catholic moral theology, we said there are three sources of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil, in that order. The mm -hmm. world being denied and disguised evil in almost every institution. Anything that's corporate is yeah. out for itself. Yeah. <laughs> Now, we were trained to think that way, to critique the world. Wow. Uh, my word for the world is the systems. Yes. Paul's word is the powers, the principalities, yeah. the thrones and dominations. Walter Wink, Walter Wink. the domination oh, system genius. is just a, such a, a dear helpful man, way. Dear yeah. man. We put all of our emphasis on the second level, the flesh. Mm. Your individual nastiness, my individual selfishness. Every preacher, it's all trying to get these flesh people converted, you know, mm. completely ignoring that all seven capital sins have been totally bought at the at the corporate level. And then so back to us. Yeah. <laughs> Collectively, it's totally wonderful to be ambitious in America, to be greedy, to be gluttonous, to be lustful. Mm. So do you see, there's a schizophrenia at the heart of our moral theology that yeah. the, the corporate is allowed to sin, and sin boldly. <laughs> the individual then is told he should feel guilty. And so if there's any revival, it's got to have bo both levels. Yes. We're not even to the devil yet. So the world, the flesh, yeah. 
the devil, what is denied and disguised, evil, yeah. what we call the world, at the devil level, it's sanctified and romanticized. It's wow. what we Americans call too big to fail. It's what wow. Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, uh, yeah. the penal system, where I worked for 14 years, the banking system, the healthcare system in America. I'm saying these systems, yes. and hear me right, are demonic. Mm. Now, I know that's scary language, mm. and no, I think it's the we only have to take that language back. It's the only the way I can understand the demonic, where it, you know. The tradition agreed the way the devil succeeds is it disguises itself as virtue, as above criticism. Mm. Any institution that is above criticism. So I have to put the religious institution up there. Yes, too. of course. <laughs> yeah. Organized religion flirts with the demonic every day, it yeah. seems to me. You know? So I teach this in the living school, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now that's a holistic revival. Wow. And uh, it coincides with what Dom Helder Camara from yeah. Brazil called the spiral of violence. It springs upward, but it's grounded in the world. And if we don't do a critique at the first lowest, most denied disguise level, private violence and evil, demonic violence and evil are inevitable. Yeah. They're out of control. Yeah. And so all I'd advise us against, and people like Shane certainly understand this, it's got to be a holistic revival, critiquing the world, mm. critiquing the flesh. I don't want to be a naive liberal and say the individual is off mm. the hook, you know. Mm. But why does he become so lustful as we see our country today? Because, in fact, the whole collective lives on lust. Yeah. <laughs> It, the demon is released, and and um, then uh, you can stop sanctifying yes. uh, evil at the third level, yeah. right? where it's above criticism. And stop limiting following to Jesus merely to the personal. To the second level, the flesh. That's yeah, right. which, I mean, we sometimes produce incredible, kind people of integrity yes. who are serving at the top of systems that are destroying the earth at the cost of the poor. Oh, my God. And this it's the not norm. that they're not doing their daily devotions. It's not that, like, they don't take prayer seriously. Mm. It's not that they're not showing up and, and right serving on. and care about charity. But, I mean, it's so deeply yeah. disturbing. And, and this nation in particular, we mirror what is happening, mm. but it... Um, you do that with with such pizzazz, yeah. <laughs> like no one else. No, I don't. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> you know, um, you know, I'm not anti Martin Luther. He was he's my hero. But as Christer Stendhal said in his classic little booklet, "The Introspective Conscience of the West," mm. we lost 500 years in understanding the teaching of Paul as merely the. Uh, salvation or justification of the individual. Yes. Uh, you know, the very notion of the liberation of Israel, the covenants are with the nation Israel, mm. with the collective, with yes. the social, with the historical. And the, the covenant is through David, but with Israel. Through Abraham, but with Israel. Through Noah, but with Israel. Salvation is a collective concept. Yes. We lost 500 years of almost no one saying that. Yeah. The last 500 years. Where it all became, how can you go to heaven? How can I go to heaven apart from you? Yeah. That, for me, is the single biggest heresy, is the individualization of God's historical salvation of humanity. Yes. Of history, of reality, and, and so forth. Little stuff. <laughs> uh, and that's going to take another 50 years to begin to undo it's, yeah. it's begun yes. by liberation theology yeah. but still most Christians are seeking their private salvation yes yeah. <laughs> so uh, the whole concentration the whole. is the second level, yeah. the second level. some of our Catholic saints said if you go to heaven alone it's not heaven you know, it's, not, <laughs> <laughs> it's not heaven it's not heaven anyway I think one of the greatest gifts to the world 
that America has given us is the black church tradition, yes. the prophetic black church yes. tradition, yes. which always insists on a, a, a collective communal understanding of salvation at its best, that it's it's we, the community, together. Yeah. And yet, if, if you're at Alfred Street Baptist in Virginia, or if you're at uh, Trinity United in, on the south side of Chicago, um, whether it's um, uh, John Wesley Howard or uh, Otis Moss III, they're both going to give an altar call at the end of their sermons for the individual. Well, that's okay. And yet they've exegeted the text in such a way that as a collective, yes. we know that we are saved together yes. to be a symbol of salvation. Yes. I, I think it is, and I, I literally have friends like who have book contracts with Zondervan who are on the speaking scene here in America who and they have never encountered the gifts of the black church in this nation. I'm from the other side of the world, and, and every chance I get, guess, yeah. guess where I'm hanging out when I'm, I'm mm. here, because of, and uh, uh, the church is still so segregated. Yes, yes, still. yes, yes. We're all, uh, many of us here on the staff are doing a collective book study of Barbara Holmes' book, Joy Unspeakable, wow. where she's talking about the black church had its own approach to contemplation. And it wasn't the more Buddhist, individualistic, sit on the map for 20 minutes of silence. Not that that's wrong. Mm. We do it here too. But but in the, the singing together, the grieving yes. together, the yes. mourning together, where it would lead to a, a hushed silence. She's making us aware, as you just rightly said, that I think oppressed churches did in many cases become contemplative mm. through great suffering. And it wasn't just this individualized notion of mm. I get enlightened by sitting on a mat twice a day by myself. <laughs> <laughs> so we're learning a lot from this. And yeah. we think the center is in a perfect position to teach this. Uh, in fact, Barbara Holmes is going to be at our summer conference this I'm year. so jealous. And we'd That's... almost like to have her, as, uh, to be honest, as part of our faculty. And yeah. She's considering it. Because um, the truth of what you say is overwhelming. Mm. How did these people accept the religion of their slave owners and then outdo them in yeah. understanding it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because they came from the side of great suffering um, and, and feeling a pinch of enslavement, more yes. than a pinch. Uh, so we've got a lot to learn. An yes. A lot to learn. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. an incredible gift. Richard, um, you are an incredible gift. I want to thank you for your You're easily humility pleased. and thank you. um, your generosity and your kindness to me for Why like years I? and years. And I, I'm very thankful. And um, yeah, just having me again. I'm really thankful. So well, thanks for your time. Very, very happy. Well, it says more about you than me. That yeah, <laughs> The soul and the heart and the mind have to be open for anything good to be exchanged. So thank you. And I apologize. I'll try and not make it a decade before I see you again. Has it been a 10 years? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's 12 since mm. we sat overlooking the coast of uh, Western Australia. Near. It was when I was in Perth. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. Well, Jared. thank you. Let I'm me... honored. I'm honored. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.